1: That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello
3: and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shape Us, now out in paperback. Firstly, this week, I want to say a huge, huge thank you. I've just announced the secret that I've been keeping for six months. In spring 2021, Sphere will be publishing my debut novel, Insatiable, the story of Violet, snarky, vulnerable and desperate for an adventure, and how she experiences and embraces desire, in all its messy, contradictory, selfish, challenging glory. I was absolutely overwhelmed in the loveliest way by your support on social media when we made the announcement. It felt better than a birthday, so thank you so much. I'm really excited to be sharing more with you about Insatiable when we get near to the publication date. And I want you all to be the first to get any news about it and any bonus material. So we've launched a Your Booked extension pack, Further Reading. It's a newsletter for fans of the podcast and fans of writing and reading. You can expect essays inspired by books I've loved. Imagine something between the LRB and the Beano, as well as book reviews and bonus episodes and special treats for subscribers. At the moment, it's completely free. In the future, you'll have the chance to purchase a premium subscription, and that will give you access to our book club, the Creative Career Clinic, which is going to be a well of great advice and handholding, as well as special events and giveaways. You can find out more at furtherreading.substack.com. Now, on to our episode. For our fifth series of Your Book, we're in the USA. Today, we're in Brooklyn with Modern Love alumnus Ada Calhoun, whose latest book, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Middle life Crisis became an instant New York Times bestseller. Ada's book, Wedding Toast I'll Never Give, is one of my all-time favourites. You might remember it being a steal of the week a few series ago. And this is one of my favourite episodes ever, mainly because Ada produced a Barbara Wurzburg YA novel that I've spent 20 years searching for and I was starting to think I dreamed it until I saw it in her book pile. Enjoy. Uh, we are in Brooklyn and I've just seen a New York book although I've not read this one in particular but I love Joan Powell oh she's um, the greatest tell me about the Wicked Pavilion so
4: she's cover. she's my all time favorite I buy copies of this um, this book and Lucas Have No King whenever I see them that's the one I love so yeah this one is all set at the Cafe Julian um, and all the regulars are there and they are very drunk all the time um, and having all kinds of you know crazy intrigues and affairs. Yeah, I just, I love everything she does.
3: Awesome. Which writer do you think writes New York closest to the New York you know? Because I know in um, your books, Marx is Dead, that's very much about, you know, place and things happening in a place and really sort of rooted to the city. Um, well, I think, I think Don Powell is still super relevant.
4: Like, I know writers who are just as scheming um, and <laughs> as, the, as the characters, and
3: just as strong as the characters in Don Powell. Um, I have to ask you about this book because I don't know it and what a title, (laughs) Sexual Customs in Rural Norway. It is so much more boring than
4: it it seems to be, but we (laughs) tend to leave it out just as a conversation piece. Um, it's,
3: It's very anthropological and not nearly as salacious as you would hope. Oh, I've just opened a chapter about adulterers. Now it is certainly so that many adulterers thereby escape all punishment in that the aggrieved spouse often, and for many reasons, will not bring suit and doesn't want the punishment carried out. It sounds quite <laughs> upset that it's not punishable.
4: Yes, I know. It's, it's, a, um, it's a very punitive kind of a book. My, my family on one side is Norwegian, and so I think it's very accurate.
3: Oh, here's a bit about um, eating water porridge 21 times a week. I mean, I think <laughs> if you were expecting a sexy read. Yes, no. But it's a great cover. See. Oh, this looks fabulous. Attitude, Common Sense Defense of Women by Lisa Sliwa. Sliwa.
4: So So, do you know about um, the Guardian Angels who were in the 80s? They were patrolling the the subways and the streets. It was uh, started by this guy, Curtis Sliwa, um, and his then wife did this insane... Common Sense Defense book for women, and the pictures are just really remarkable. And he's a he's a model in a lot of it, where uh-huh. she's like, you know, she's kneeing him in the groin, or like, you know, putting punching his eyes out.
3: Um, there it so is. So Just to to paint a picture, um, as we're um, <laughs> we're doing audio. They're very. They're, it's very mimey. I think it looks like something you'd get to take yeah, at a theater, there is theater school is theatre something. Exactly that sort spandexy of black, 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 mm-hmm. black. Lots of very. They're very kind of acrobatic. They're, Sort of quite beautiful, quite um Lindsay Kempy. Do I mean Lindsay Kemp? Hmm. Um.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and yeah, she's got the spandex tights with the
4: kind of big socks and little shoes that were very popular in the eighties while she's strangling him with his tie. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty educational book. What with headings about- headings like bus shelters, boarding psychology, finding a seat, subway windows, reading, avoiding thugs, and rush hour.
3: Oh, what did she say about avoiding thugs?
4: Uh, on the subway, if you feel someone is checking you out, move to another car.
3: <laughs> I could see that being like a sort of a, a redux of that. And I would absolutely <laughs> volunteer if you need someone to hold awkward poses. Yes, I definitely saw them
4: a lot when I was a kid um, in my neighborhood. So I grew up in the East Village on St. Mark's Place. And it was a much more dangerous time. It's funny, my son is growing up here now and, and it's, just, it's, it's a very different city in a lot of ways. And people complain about it a lot, and I hear those complaints, but also it's like so much safer. <laughs> and uh, I'm a, sometimes I'm like, you know, put your chain inside your your shirt, and like, don't take your wallet out anywhere where anybody can see it. And my son will be like, you know, it's not the 70s. It's like, okay. okay.
3: And I think he is actually correct. I was just reading um, Ani Babbitt's essay about time spent in New York coming from LA, and how she walking around in the seventies and as a matter of habit she just let like, leave her purse open all the time so she get to what she needs to get to and constantly having angry women like a cluster <laughs> saying, Shut your purse, it's not safe
4: <laughs> Yeah, I think that's one thing about New York is like people always have opinions about uh-huh. everything and like I have definitely been like asked for advice and then I start to give advice about like, you know, directions and then somebody else would be like, No, you should take the C <laughs> and they'd be like, No, they can't take the C and and you'll have like two or three New Yorkers on the sidewalk like, arguing about which Advice, you know, which, which directions to give to this poor
3: tourist who's like, I just want to get to the Met, or whatever. This book, Susanna Callahan, The Great Pretender, I and so she wrote, um, Brain on Fire. This looks amazing. In 1973, a charismatic doctor convinced eight healthy people to commit themselves to mental hospitals. They had to prove their sanity to be set free. Their undercover mission changed our understanding of madness forever. So is this a sort of like an historical book. Eh? Yeah,
4: she goes, she tries to find all the patients, the pseudo patients who went into these insane asylums. They, they didn't have anything necessarily psychologically wrong with them when they went in. Um, and she tried to find them all and then she, she runs into all of these uh, blockades trying to find them and she starts to think maybe this guy made them up. And and it it's this becomes this mystery where she's trying to track these people down and trying to figure out, like, did he fabricate this incredibly influential study? And it's just a page turner. It's really exciting. She's a good friend of mine. We run a, um, a women's nonfiction reading series and, and kind of support group um, once a month at a bar. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So what are you reading at the moment in the group? Uh, oh no, it's not a book club. It's like a, they it, people do reading. So we'll have oh. like, so we did one with like Susan Orlean, where Susanna and I and our other co host, um, Karen Abbott, who's also a great writer, whose book, The Ghosts um, of Eden Park, just came out. The three of us will interview the person. Um, right. And we'll have editors come who are looking for pitches. And it's just a, like a kind of a gang of women journalists.
3: Oh, what a brilliant thing to do. That yeah, you should fantastic. come. I would love to come. Uh, I can see you on the cover here. Oh, yeah. Um, a thrilling, eye-opening read, even for those who thought they weren't affected by the psychiatric world. Um, and John Ronson says, it's what you should read after you've read The Psychopath Test, mm-hmm. which is a heck of a recommendation. Yeah, it's a terrific book. Oh, it's really, really. exciting. To read that. We should probably, or I should explain... We are in, um, in your Brooklyn apartment, um, and most of your books are upstate, so um, very, very kindly you have provided <laughs> pictures of your upstate books, so we're looking at virtual shelves and real shelves, so... Is this book here by Lisa Carver. Yes. Um, the font is very curly, so I was like, is that Carver or Garver? <laughs> um, Dancing Queen, A Lusty Look at the American Dream. But I know there are lots of her books in yeah,
4: I Yeah, so I've been
3: um, friends with
4: her. I was her editor back at Nerve.com, which I was an editor at many, many years ago. So just to
3: explain, because I don't know, I know Nerve I've had a lot of fans in the UK, but just in mm-hmm. case, that was a kind of... I remember it. yeah.
4: Yeah, no, she was basically their star writer, uh, in my mind, and, um, and just super creative and surprising. And she'd done this zine called Roller Derby for many years. Um, and this book, Dancing Queen, I love. I give it to a lot of people. It's an essay collection about America. And it's so enthusiastic. Like, she just has this approach to the world that's so curious and unusual. Um, I, I find it very refreshing. Amazing. We've got a
3: chapter called A Visit to the Sadistic Beauty Parlour. A place where only girls can go, to the gynecologist. Um ooh, on the Judith Krantz roadmap of love, all hideways lead to trouble. The oh, art looks so good. She
4: had one essay, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's in there or not, but it was about sexualists versus sensualists and about how she was a sexualist and not a sensualist and how sensualists made her crazy. It was like the men, they like have their long hair and they hang it over you in bed, and it's so horrible <laughs> and creepy and um, they light candles and they just, it was
3: all of this <gasps> sort of talk about how terrible sensualists were and I Do you know the writer it. Marion Keys? an uh-huh. Irish writer. He's really, really funny. Like commercially, like so successful but so, she's just, I think she's brilliant and I think because she's so, so popular and does say so well, people don't always appreciate just how socially brilliant and smart <laughs> she is but she has a bit, th- she calls it um, feathery strokery but yeah, that kind of, you know, men who are like, i just very Heathery strokery is a great genius, term. That's of. perfect. Yeah. It's, 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 it's exactly. the same idea with a different name. Yes. It's...
4: Do you know this book, Chroma? Do you know Derek Jarman, yes. the yes. director? So, this is one of my favorite books. I give this to a lot of people too, where he was going um, blind um, in the, the last months of his life and he wrote a chapter for every color and it was all of his associations with that color. And when you read it you start to see the world more vividly, I oh, wow. think, because you just you start to appreciate like grey or yellow or whatever you're reading that that afternoon. It's just a beautiful book about
3: mortality and beauty. That is an amazing idea for essays and I like that it's sort of a mix of prose and poetry. This is uh it'll be quiet while I read it. <laughs> well this one is just it's so unique. It's such a, it's such a special Thing. And right here, um, it says, New Delhi, oh. India, finished in hospital March 1995.
4: I forgot about that. I, didn't, I forgot I had written in that. Um, I used to write when I finished books on the, like, author page. So, yeah, I, I d- took a trip around... Uh, India when I was 18 by myself, I did, it was sort of a ridiculous thing to do in retrospect or I just, I wrote to a bunch of places that I knew were doing like permaculture or something that I thought was interesting and then a lot of them wrote me back and invited me to come and then I got out a map and like traced a route um, for three months to go from one to the other. So I started in, at Mother Teresa's mission in Calcutta and then I just went down along the east coast and not the west coast and so, yeah, but I got sick and I wound up an hospital and I, read, I guess I was reading Chroma. Who knew?
3: Well, that must have been quite an intense read when you were sick and thousands so. of miles from home.
4: I guess it was. I mean, it seems appropriate now because because he was dying and I almost did. So, oh. uh, what, what happened? Was it like a, a bug? Um, or? Like amoe- amoebic dysentery. Oh, and my God. Yeah, it was pretty... Well, I had been working... I started in Bangladesh and I was working at uh, building... Um, like sanitary latrines and doing you know, like all this sort of peace quarry type work. And there was only well water. There was no bottled water. So that what didn't go so well.
3: Well, I guess that's where if you're you know, in a hospital full of like grays and beiges, you want to you know, even <laughs> the blandest colors more. Yeah,
4: it's true. Um, um, and actually, it's funny. This I, um, This book is called A Treasury of Traditional Wisdom, and I bought this in India. It's this giant book, and it's printed like a lot of books in India are on this sort of slightly yellowish... Uh, paper. The chapters are things like union, identity, and discernment, truth, and combat, action, mercy, love, contemplation. And it's these categories, and then it's just quotes from the Bible and from um, the Gita and from like all of these different sources of religious <laughs> really? inspiration.
3: And universal and, and saints, comprehensive. Yes,
4: East and West, uh, Plato, Muhammad. And all I can think of is like in Middle March, where he's writing the key, the key to all mythologies. Like, that's basically what this book is.
3: Wow, I mean, that's it's such an enormous thing to, to buy and carry around with you. It's really, it's so fun though. You really, you can
4: just like open it up anywhere and get hit with a lot of really interesting and strange philosophy
3: uh this book beautiful losers by barbara worse but this has got the most amazing cover it looks like classic ya oh ages 12 and up Very, it totally is and so there is this series of books i have (gasps) oh my god i love this book i read this
4: book you don't
3: know why i don't know anybody who's read this book i think about this all the time and i found it in my um school library at secondary school and i'm always like what the hell was that book i read about the girl who's like you know, it's a trilogy with the old ultimate... Did you know yes.
4: there's three of them? Uh, and my, I've got two good friends who both, uh, we oh, all exchange gosh. YA books, and this is definitely the winner because. It's, so it's this trilogy, and for people who don't know it, it's this girl, and she's, um, she's very heavy, and so it's a lot about eating and her weight and trying to diet. And I
3: remember, because it's fat, a love story. Yeah, a love so story the first one. Eating disordered preteen, that yeah. spoke to me. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and, um, but then the crazy thing is that she falls in love with this older man, and it just takes a real hard left turn. Oh,
3: yeah, and he's a cheesecake company salesman
4: oh I forgot about that yes so anyway the the romance goes in directions you would not expect like you would you would think that she would learn to love herself and the um and the romance would end but no it does not end and it goes on for two more books
3: that just getting to this bit now because also this first bit I guess with it being the third book in the the trilogy it's almost like you know on last week's show or previously and Rita's life but that um when she starts sleeping with him and she goes on and her mum freaking out Mm -hmm. as you'd expect your mother to do but then be like I must take you to therapy which Uh I thought was a very sophisticated (laughs) way of dealing with the problem God, this is a I, honestly. Sometimes I've worried that I've dreamed this.
4: Amazing, no, I, I, it's it's so surprising. I think so many of those books are formulaic, and this one completely dispenses with any formula you've ever known. I
3: remember her being in a way that I found really kind of reassuring as a so I guess I've not read this since I was like maybe eleven or twelve. Um but she seemed like very relatedly adult. You know, when you are a kid and people think that you are a certain way and your voice you know, that you're yeah. much more limited than you are. Mm-hmm. And so when did you find this book?
4: Uh probably a few years ago. My friend Asia who um she mailed it to me, she mailed me Fatal Love Story and then I went on online and found the other two. Uh, just because we like books that are shocking or surprising, that that it makes you think, uh, especially as as a writer, like you you start to think like, oh, you don't have to have it structured like this. You can do this crazy structure.
3: Because I, I, mean, like you know, love and adore Gigi Bloom, and I think uh-huh. of in that way, she's very much. I think in a way that possibly was more typical then than now. I thought she tends to treat her characters in quite a sophisticated way, but they do tend to get happy endings, yes. which is great. Is the emotional development seems quite steady and quite linear compared to that. But you can she, map them, and but, this one you cannot map. It's all over the place. I always thought Paula Day singer I never know if I'm saying her name right, that she was a little darker uh-huh. and that her characters were just slightly messier.
4: The other YA books that I like a lot that are also very sexy are um, Francesca Block's book weetzie bat is one of the big ones oh she's wonderful it's very very los angeles they're all set with like the jacaranda blossoms (gasps) and the lights and these wild nights out running around and they're just so mystical and there's a lot of sex in them oh that's that's they're Um, really good i read them in my early 20s and i they're they're transporting in this way did you. you read
3: that book, *The Pisces* by Melissa Broder? Uh uh-uh. uh Well, it's it's set in L.A. and it's about a woman who has sex with a merman, and it's got that kind of oh, very go. West Coast, uh-huh. very sexy, very explicit, also quite mystical. It's mm-hmm. that sort of shift of like the magical realism, and yes. it's in a real universe, and then it just goes slightly distorted and weird. So
4: that sounds a lot like Francesca Lia, because there there are characters who are
3: who don't
4: seem fully human in her books too. Oh, she's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, she's good. All right, what else did I do? Oh, speak. So, last child's book that I brought is I was obsessed with these. Did you ever read these books like <gasps> that? So it's like the Encyclopedia Brown, which I was also obsessed with, but these Hawkeye Collins and Amy Adams
3: books. They're like, can you solve the mystery? And I would
4: read a dozen of these a week. That
3: is so evocative. <laughs> so again, for the for the listener who might take a photo of this, but that's okay. Well, yeah, remember. Um, the case the clever computer crooks and this is an amazing sort of it's a computer that looks like a microwave on a typewriter <laughs> and um there's a sort of you know i guess i guess this um, this poor child is a nerd because he's got very square like elvis costello glasses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
4: um, but he has like the, girl the the pretty, you know best friend who's a girl mm-hmm. the way that they always
3: do um, so, is this a little bit like a choose your own adventure book? Yeah, to...
4: it's like that where, and, but there's drawings so because he, he would draw the pictures and you'd have to solve the mystery with the clues that are in the picture and in the story. Um, so, I was totally obsessed with those as a kid. So, now we can move back to grown up books. Um, oh, P.G. Woodhouse is one of my favorite writers.
3: Uh, so, this is Smith in the City. It's, I always get this mixed up with the indiscretions of Archie. Um, oh. So, Smith in the City is... I get
4: them all mixed up because they all uh-huh. have almost the same names and some of them have more than one. It's like, so Right Ho Jeeves is one of my favorites, I think, but then I can't <laughs> remember if that's, you know, the one where, like, which is the one with the pig, which is the one with, the, you know, but I just love
3: everything but Sometimes, sometimes something that done. comes up a lot is everyone can remember the way a book made them feel, but sometimes you're like, I couldn't tell you what happened, I just remember. Yes. And I think that in a... The loveliest, best way, that mm-hmm. consistency of you know his universe and yes. it's such a nice feeling to be it. So And
4: who and who's and the and the characters and the names like Gussie Finknottle, who's an inebriated newt fancier. But the Bertie Wooster Jeeves ones are that we listen to those audiobooks in the car a lot in my family, and they're so satisfying because the actor playing Jeeves is always so Dry, and Deadpan. But, oh, and Stephen Fry does the Sherlock Holmes audiobook that is like 80 hours of pure delight.
3: So this is something that
4: you listen to as a family? Yes, on car trips, and um, my son loves all things British, so
3: we indulge that with P.G. Woodhouse and Sherlock Holmes. Is there anything that you have discovered through your son in that world of kind of you know old detective novels and old sort of human did you introduce him to a lot of this stuff or has he brought any of that into your world
4: well I mean I think just audiobooks in general I had never really done them but then he got a tape player and a bunch of Harry Potter cassettes and he would this is when he was like five or six years old and he would just do the Harry Potter cassettes um while doing legos and so it would just be the constant sound and he would just you know every time they ended he would just stand up flip it over keep playing it and then keep doing Legos. he could do it for infinite numbers of hours uh so then we started to realize that the tapes wore out we're like oh we can just get this online and and then you don't even have to get up from your legos so we started doing that and then i started listening to oh like uh the woman in white
3: i did that as an audiobook that will keep Yes. It's so trashy. I get it can really <laughs> confuse with The Woman in Black, which The Woman in Black is spooky. This is spooky too. Uh, there's like the woman, she appears on the road, and it's very classic gothic horror. I wonder if that's... Do you think it's more fun to listen to it than to read it to really get that atmosphere of being...
4: I don't know. I go back and forth. I set. usually have a couple books I'm listening to on, um, and then a couple books I'm reading at least. So I just like having all of the different sources. What do you
3: listen to at the moment? And where do you listen? Is it on the go or do yeah, you put like it on?
4: on the, on the subway. Um, I just finished Middlemarch, uh, oh. which I hadn't read in years. And I thought like, oh, I had but a long car trip that I had to take. So, um, and I was like, oh, it's, it's 50 hours or whatever, so I can do that. And it was, I was sad when it ended. It was so nice to live with. Oh,
3: was it a different
4: experience coming back to it now? Yeah, I, I think I read it when I was, a teenager last time and it's so much more interesting now I feel like I just got I got so much more out of it in terms of the decisions you make and the kind of men that are this way or that way and and the moral choice that she makes with the will I don't just all of it it, it resonated more
3: I think that's so interesting that some of those especially with classic books with all the books that you come to and you're I think that when one is a sort of you know teenager or whatever you've got such a clear sense of like well of course that's exactly what you should do why would you do anything else and then you realize how you know it's hard being an adult and i think that's the problem too with being like a precocious
4: child or teenager is like i read a lot of classic books when i was 12 13 14 15 you know like and and then i'm like oh i read that but like did i i you know i didn't i didn't absorb it as an adult so i'm trying to go back and read a lot of those now yeah i knew the words and i i got the story But it's you have a different perspective on things as a
3: grown-up. Can you remember the first time you read a book growing up when you thought, "Oh my goodness, this is for me. This is for no one but me. This is my book."
4: I think Jane Eyre. I read that when I was really very young, and so I felt kind of like I was happy to be seen carrying it around because I think I was probably 13 or something. And I just I found it so like I guess sexy, like and so mysterious, and um, I really I think I really related to to her because I also was this sort of, like, good girl and and responsible um, with this this rich fantasy
3: life. I guess, in a way, I think the Brontes, it's kind of, it's the opposite of that, because I think everything that they write about is so intense and extreme. And it's so, it's almost like, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, I, I absolutely love a great YA, as we discussed, but I think something like Jane Eyre has almost that YA vibe of yes. a real... A universe of absolute kind of moral truths and imperatives, <laughs> and everybody really yes. knowing their emotions and feeling them.
4: Yeah, and I I think also um, like Jane Austen, where everything is so ratcheted up. Like if you show an ankle, if you exchange a look, it has it's so dense with meaning. And I think if you're young, especially, that's very satisfying because you, you're your threshold for excitement is pretty low still where you're like oh yes it is thrilling if he looks at me in class
3: well, um, the, i think it might be in emma maybe when um possibly frank churchill tries to make love to oh god it's i can't even remember if it's emma or harriet um and i think you know that obviously just means there's a language of the times so that i like, tried to you know kiss her or something or right. just, just even like say lots of nice things to her yeah. but i was like oh they had oh. sex with the cat that's so racy <laughs>
4: yes exactly
3: I, do, I mean, what I love about Jane Austen, I think, is the the bitchiness of it, yes. and that it was absolutely. As soon as I realised, like, oh my god, this is just like, you know, before like Mean Girls, capital M, capital G, yes. like you know, it's sort of, I'm at school with these these girls, but yes. in you know, it's a different context. But people, we've we've not changed that much, and you we know, never what is, will.
4: What is that line? I just remember Greer Garson saying it in the movie of like, where she's practicing archery and she delivers this line to the girl who's trying to to snub her that's like i hope next time the arrow hits its mark or something like that <laughs> it's just these really saucy comebacks
3: <laughs> what is this
4: subsister oh yeah like? that's what we named the um uh nonfiction group that i run after <gasps> so Sister was a name for uh women journalists in the 1930s because they were the ones who wrote these stories that made people cry because they were tear-jerked jerkers and so we reclaimed this this rather diminutive title for our group of women writers i
3: didn't know about any of this This is a beautiful edition i love you got it from a books i see (laughs) and it's by mildred gilman which is a very um
4: yeah and she was a writer for the new yorker she i went back and read a lot of her journalism it's very good it was from the 30s and she covered a lot of crimes and um, a lot of New York City happenings Uh, but this novel is it it draws heavily from her time on a city desk and I worked on a city desk at the New York Post for a little while about 10 years ago.
3: Geez I'd rather work on a story with 10 men reporters than one female subsister. (laughs) (laughs) female sister as well. So, have you? I was just rereading Nora Ephron's essay about working on the post and oh, the editor yeah. and her campaign to get the toilets cleaned and stuff right. and how. Right, so she was the only one using the women's bathroom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you say you worked on the city desk. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Were you. It was fascinating. It was really. It, it was
4: good for me in that I had worked at New York Magazine and all these other places where I was writing about culture. And so when you call people, they wanted to talk to you. And they did not want to talk to you when you called from the post after a tragedy had (laughs) happened. So I got a lot of practice trying to get people to let me interview them and being shot down a lot, which just made me much better as a reporter. And I, I wish I'd had
3: that experience earlier. I'm trying to kind of picture how it would be that you sort of have you know things to you know some would say like here's a list of people to call here's a. <laughs>
4: so one time I arrived at work and the editor on the desk said, "It's a wonderful day," and I was like, "Why?" And he said, "Oh, overnight this Russian spy was arrested," and I said, "Okay, great. Like, what's her name? What you know? What's what am I doing?" And he's like, oh, it's more wonderful than you could even imagine because look, look at her picture. And she's beautiful. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, there's the cover. And then um, he's like, Ada, look at the color of her hair. And I was like, oh, it's red. Of course. Now you've got, like, 20 headlines. (laughs) He's like, this is three weeks of headlines. Um, So it's things like that. I I wound up doing a lot of online research, trying to track down information to help figure out where people were going to sent to Door Knock, um because a lot of the reporters who'd been there a long time, they they were sort of of the, the boot leather uh, school, and they didn't trust the internet particularly. So I was one who, who, like, if there was a hurricane and they needed to go interview people whose windows had blown in, I would go on Twitter and be like, oh no, my windows just blew in, like, as a search. And then find people who were tweeting about it or talking about it online, and be like, "Here's some leads. Why don't we call these ten people? Because it seems like they all got hit." And then you can figure out who to go to. I would find things because I just got all these these hunches. For like, we, there was that Times Square bomber when I was there, and nobody had a picture of him. We need a picture of him, so I started looking around online, and then it took me a few hours. But then I found on MySpace his brother-in-law had posted the bomber's wedding pictures oh. like 10 years earlier when he was in high school and he was like oh here's my new you know brother-in-law so
3: i just i really enjoyed it as a kind of a treasure hunt it's weird, isn't it? Because nearly all the journalism I've done has been um, when I, I worked for a Teen Mag. So lots yes. of it was like, oh, I'll go and interview like this band or You know, they really? knew you were coming. There's yes. no, difference. but one of the things I had to do was um, it was like a real life section. So you know, getting teenagers where it's right. like things have happened, and that in being aware of those real like ambulance chasing agencies yes. where oh my god, there was one um, story <laughs> that was all and because we had just no budget and no money, and we uh-huh. always like, had to kind of do it like a year after everyone else or Uh um but this poor kid was I think maybe Glastonbury and she was in like a porta potty and it um rolled down a hill and everybody was like this poor, She was known as like Pooh Girl oh, <laughs> in the UK the press. Thing? And I just remember like Edith saying, like, please try and get me Pooh Girl. <laughs> She's a teenager. Come on. She's like, this is did our demographic. I don't think I did in the end. I think we got close. But she was like, mm, um, <laughs> we can give her like a goodie bag of like tiny bottles of shampoo. Sugar can give her a £1,000. She's going to go with sugar. Oh, wow. I keep thinking as well about what Nora Ephron said with having to, um, I'm sure it was different when you were there, but like you had to, I think the phone bit and the headset was separate and nothing ever matched. And there were never quite like enough of one thing to go with the other. So you had to like <laughs> lock your headset in your drawer when you went to lunch. Otherwise someone else would nick it and you'd be there and be like, I can't call anyone. I've got no funny. stories.
4: What's her, she has this essay
3: collection that I had. It's called like Scribble Scribble. Yes. It's a great title. I love that so much. It's a real masterclass. The other thing I think about constantly is her piece about the, I think it's called the Ladies Palm Beach Home Journal or oh, something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, totally. That's it's a great it's a great piece. All of these sort of like fabulous wealthy women of a certain <laughs> age in caftans, again, all bitching about each other, yes. Jane Austen style, but in print.
4: <laughs> yes, exactly. No, she's wonderful.
0: So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: We'll be back to Ada soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a story so valuable that Indiana Jones himself would go on a crusade for it. This week it's Old Filth by Jane Garden, a story of Edward Feathers, the Raj orphan who survives intolerable cruelty and confusion growing up to become a wealthy, celebrated QC. Gardam is an extraordinarily gifted writer of prose. Every single one of her characters sings with vulnerability and humanity. This is a touching, quietly devastating, funny and overwhelmingly evocative book. It made me feel enormously privileged to have spent time with everyone I met on its pages. Old Filth is published by Abacus and it's out now. Now, back to Ada.
4: So here we have John by Annie Baker. Oh, I love, so she is a playwright and she, she, everything she does, I try to go see. I have a, a good friend who works at the Times who writes about comedy mostly, but he also gets theater tickets and he takes me a lot. And he turned me on to her and I just, I think she's a genius. So I I saw the play and then I think I bought it because I want my I wanted my husband to read it. Um, and then I reread it too because it's, it's, I love reading plays. I've seen, oh, the flick, that one, like the Pulitzer or some big, And that's also a wonderful play that I wound up having to read because I I missed the production of it. But it's all set at a movie theater, and it's all the the people working at the movie theater sweeping up the popcorn.
3: Oh, and I I don't really for shame, and I should. I I, when I was a teenager, I used to read plays a lot, and now I never think to do it. And it's very satisfying too because it's so fast.
4: Mm. You can you can read it (laughs) in a couple hours. Uh, oh, I just picked this up. I was, at, I was doing a bookstore event, and I always try to just buy a couple hardcovers whenever I do anything. And so this oh, was nice. on the... Well, I mean, I, you know, I love bookstores, and I want them to prosper. So um, I just—I grabbed this from the front table, because it was under the Recommendeds, and it's Warlight by Michael Ondaatje. And, um, it's, and I don't read a lot of n- new novels, but it's so good. its It's just very beautifully written... It's set in World War Two in London, um, and it's told from the, the point of view of these children, uh, or this one child. And, and then he's talking about his sister, and his parents abandon them, and he's—they're living with this guy who's a little shady. Um, it's really lovely.
3: Great, that's such an evocative cover as well. Yeah, it's like beautiful. The, the streetlights rising out of the mist. Yeah,
4: and I didn't read *The English Patient*, so this
3: is actually my first uh, book by him, and. I'm like, oh, that's what the fuss is about. I get it. I've never read The English Patient. I should, it's one of it when it's so much part of the culture, you sort of, you think you know it. And you're yeah. like, I, people probably like that for a reason. I should probably <laughs> go. Um, the Decay of Lying by Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah. Ooh, so when
4: I was young, uh, Oscar Wilde and P.G. Woodhouse were my two favorites. They were really what gave me a sense of, of what humor was like in writing and how creative you could be with the way you structured sentences and um, the directions you took things. So, but yeah, this is this cute little green book. I don't even remember where I got it. I love
3: it. It was two ninety nine. dollars 99 It says here, it's got your name on, and it says 2010. So I don't know if that's when. I don't know. It doesn't say where or any other. Huh. Why does it say that? I'm, am I going mad? Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no that might. So
4: I read it in the 90s. This is NM. That's my husband. He started. Ah. He started whenever I had that in there, and he read my books. He would write his own.
3: Oh, that's Yeah. Um What books
4: has he introduced you to? If any, are there anything that?
3: Main think So, so he reads it. a lot
4: of religious books, a lot of mysticism, oh. and so like Saint Teresa of Avila, he gave me, and um, that's his main thing. And then he's and then country music. I think not as much many books because he got a terrible education and he grew up in East Texas, but he's educated me thoroughly in country music.
3: Well, I think that's sometimes really nice, you know, you can bring different things to each other and yeah. then have a, because, you know, it's great to have books in common with people and to like the same thing, but then you just, you know, you do end up with a lot of overlap. Is that something really great I saw about someone developing a horrible habit of um, of truth telling? <laughs> So great. Well, if, um,
4: I, if I remember correctly, I think this was a this was to his sons, right, Vivian and the other one, and it was all cereal, about
3: which I'm only saying because it's on the page I opened it. At, oh, otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't
4: know. And he is telling them basically that nature is flawed and that making things up is way better. And <laughs> and there's something having grown up in the city and growing up in this cosmopolitan world that I really appreciated about this idea that there's something beautiful about falsehood and fabrication and
3: urbanity. And I guess, you know, now more than ever, everything is distorted by the way someone else is seeing it, really. There's yeah. no... When you really, really think about it, you know, truth is, is not objective, which kind of brings us back to mysticism, I guess. <laughs> um, and here we have... American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Particular Serial Killer of the 21st Century by but Maureen Callahan. moderated a talk with her. So she actually
4: worked at the New York Post too. So Susanna Cahalen and Maureen and I have all, we are all blonde and all worked at the Post oh, at various and times. see
3: Susanna on the back of this. Yes, I'm in here too. We like, all just blow
4: oh, each other's books. I know it's a racket, right? It's like. Um... I love <laughs> the big <little old> love <laughs> um, Oh, it's
2: wow. You've got, the, you've got the big one. No. On the
4: uh, I, th- it's a great, if you like serial killer books, this is an amazing one. It's, she spent years doing it, and she had to sue to get all these files. And it's totally terrifying and very well done.
3: Do you like a lot of kind of true crime books? Occasionally. I've,
4: I've read a f- only a few. I'm very s- susceptible <laughs> and very, like, and very um, sensitive, so I, I can't read them all the time.
3: I know what you mean. I do. I just, I, I don't like that murderers exist. <laughs> but some, every so often I will read something and be absolutely blown away by how brilliantly it's done and how sort of compelling and fascinating it is. But I think I've maybe got three or four in me a year tops before mm-hmm. that's the Thanks. most murderous I can it's, handle. It's like
4: riding roller coasters, which I also like to do once every couple of years. It just kind of clears the
3: cobwebs out. Not well, every day. Getting extremely drunk. I'm now at the yes. point in my life where I'm like, that's a twice a year <laughs> yes, activity same. for me. Um, should we have a look at some um, yeah, so, so, virtual books? Um,
4: so one is that I just saw in, this, in these pictures was Night of the Gun, the David Carr book. He was a long-time New York Times writer and he mentored a lot of people. And he died not that long ago, uh, a few years ago. And then all of these stories poured out from almost all of my friends saying... He wrote me the most encouraging, amazing letter about how I, you know, and I was like, oh, it's so sweet. But then I was also like, why didn't I get a
3: letter? <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: but this but book, He
3: probably was like, you know, Ada, is great.
4: Ada doesn't need <laughs> any help. She's
3: doing um, absolutely fine. But
4: he was just a really incredible guy. So That's Night of the gun. gun is this story where he actually goes back and, and reports on his own life. So he had had all these drug and alcohol problems and had been involved in crimes and um, had just been quite a bad person and even when he had these twin babies and he he told the story about having left them in the car when he went in to score drugs and um, left them out there for hours and it's just amazingly well done because he brings all of his reporting experience to bear on this memoir uh, and as a memoirist, I think it's it's just so inspiring. How so that, hard he works. That
3: sounds great. Is he quite kind of judgmental of himself, or does he sort of present it as fact or is it a, is there a combination of two it's He's trying very hard, I think, to be clear eyed
4: mm-hmm. and to hold his feet to the fire and to try to go back and and figure out what he can know for sure about what he did mm-hmm. and to try to make up for it a little bit at least in terms of acknowledging it. Um, and the reason it's called The Night of the Gun is he had this memory the story where his friend's, like, waving a gun around. I think this is how it goes. And then he goes back to be like, oh, remember when you had that gun? And he was, they were like, no, you had the gun. Oh. Yeah. That's
3: really interesting. It's
4: very, very well written. So I, every time I teach anything or, involving memoir, I always have people read that book.
3: At the moment, of um, in the UK, I think Will Self's memoir has just come out, and oh, I, I just did. read a review of that that was yeah, really teasing. Oh. But that almost sounds like the opposite. You know, yes. sort of that could be perhaps the. Um, Exactly. antidote. I think
4: that's <laughs> I right. I think and and it, what I love about it is that he um, he really is not trying to justify anything. He's not trying to make himself look mm-hmm. great. And in fact, he looks quite bad in the in the book, but then in doing that, you just get a sense of him as being ashamed and um, and trying to make it better. It's I love it book.
3: Really, really compelling. I would love to read that. Yeah, it's highly recommended. Um, So here I see Colette. I see A Flatland Fable. Oh, yeah. I love this book, A Flatland Flatland.
4: Fable. And that was one of those books. So I go to used bookstores all the time. And at one, I just like the cover. It's a um, picture of a farm in the middle of nowhere. So I picked it up, and I just, I, I loved it. It's, it's by this guy, Joe Coomer. I read a few of his books now, and I liked all of them. Um, he and Lou Shiner, I found at the same time. Do you know him? He has a book called Glimpses, um, and another book called Slam. And Glimpses is amazing. Oh,
3: Slam, I think I've heard of. Yeah,
4: it's a like skateboarding in Austin uh, novel. But so, um, but this Joe Coomer book, it's just so small. It's like, I think it's a day or a few days in the life of this family in the Midwest, and it's just beautiful.
3: It just reminds me. I really love books where it's it's a very specific sort of time. Um, the, what other one is like the opposite of the saga. Oh yes, 48 exactly.
4: hours. There was. I think I was just hearing somebody on a podcast. I think talking about the books that have everything in them. Oh, it was the Salman Rushdie interview on the Literary Life, and it was he was saying like there should just be two categories of books, like the quiet little books where like very few things
3: happen, and then the books where everything happens. <laughs> It's true, I love a quiet little book. Did okay. you read uh, Keyshot? Uh, I haven't yet. Did you read it? I did, and it was much more fun than I thought it oh, was going okay. to be. It's quite, I mean, it's very, a little bit, I think, self-referential, and you could almost hear, oh, it's a really good bit. This is very <laughs> clever here. But, um, but there's a um, I, there's a woman in it called Salma who's, I guess, kind of, a little bit, kim kardashian-esque he's sort of a huge bollywood star he becomes a sort of neo oprah right. um, and i think he writes her really well i was really impressed by how it was like oh he managed to write a woman convincingly yeah. hooray oh,
4: right.
3: because not everyone does indeed oh i love olivia lang the um the one i reviewed i this is the lonely city i reviewed for the times and oh, i really oh, quite I loved love that book i can just on the picture you can just see the lonely bit and then, <laughs> I think the Lonely City. Oh, there we go. It's the uh, that's the end of there the. There it show. is. Yeah, because you sort of think it's going to be a memoir, and then it's almost an anti memoir, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of losing um, itself in other people's lives and oh because we just went to see me and Producer Dale, um, the David Wojnarowicz um, exhibition, I'm looking at Producer Dale because I can never say his last name right Um, You did it right, that's Wojnarowicz, yay Um, Yeah there was an exhibition of his work at the Reina Sofia in Madrid we had to go to Madrid because it wasn't coming to the UK but it was really great and then Interesting as well because we just went to the Guggenheim and saw um, they had like a sort of a mini basket bit at the top. We saw how sort of um, the posters and things that David uh, Wojnarowicz made. Uh-huh. Um, but and it was a real kind of moment of like, everything is connected. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, a friend of mine has a big David Wojnarowicz
4: poster in his um, kitchen. It's the one where he's a, a boy. It's like the picture of the boy and it's all these things about the boy written around it um, Loved. this is my uh, friend Gilbert King um, this is his latest book is called Beneath a Ruthless Sun so he, he does these incredible books where he winds up reinvestigating murder cases and death row cases and he's exonerated people and it's um, he's a really good person um, and he's won the Pulitzer I don't even know how many times yeah. I
3: have a lot of friends who'd like to find out about letters <laughs> but I guess these are all people who are falsely accused or yeah, no, he's he, he does these
4: um, Devil in the Grove. That was his his famous book about this um, corrupt prosecutor in Florida. And um, but he he's just he's just really a remarkable writer and researcher.
2: Which
4: one? Um, oh, Barbara Ehrenreich. Mm. Oh, that's it. I love that book, Nickel and Dimed, where she went and tried to make uh, a living as a maid at a hotel. Barbara Ehrenreich has written about social justice. For many years, but she actually just went, and I can't remember how long was it—six months or something or a year—where she tried to live off a of minimum wage, and she wrote about what it was like. And it was just brutal. <laughs> she really learned so much about the on-the-ground reality of being incredibly poor in America, and it's—it's it's a very well-done book. Oh, I have all these weird books that were set in the East Village through the years. So this one, *The Season of the Witch* by James Leo Hurley, it's that's from the '70s, and it's. Um, there's kidnapping, and it's all these beatniks who are who are behaving very badly, and uh, it's uh, I guess hippies who are behaving badly. Um, this is Sarah Heppola. She's an old friend of mine. Oh, that's her I book, love Blackout. That book, Blackout.
3: Blackout. Yeah, it's
4: fantastic. She is great, and actually, she is, has some of the best quotes I think in my new book that, um, that's coming out in January. But she and I worked together at the Austin Chronicle. A million
3: years ago, like when we were very, very young. <laughs> oh, I think, does she write about that time in that book? I vaguely remember. She does, yes. Up. Yeah. Because it's so, I think it's interesting how, um, I think that, you know, compared to lots of kind of addiction memoirs um, that I've read, because I love an addiction memoir, mm-hmm. and the, the way she really, it's one of the most emotionally vulnerable mm-hmm. sort of books I've read about the subject, I think. Yeah. Oh, what is that? The sports writer by Oh, that's the Richard Ford book. I, I love those vintage editions. Me too. i got all the Jane McEnery
4: ones. They're there. so lovely. Those and like was it the Vintage International? Those I have all those ones. Ooh. So, the, but the sports writer is like a classic middle-aged man midlife crisis book, uh, and so I feel like I read. I tried to read a lot of those when I was working on my
3: midlife crisis for women book, which um. Yeah, can we talk more about this, oh, sure. about the new book?
4: Yeah.
3: So it's called Why We can-
4: Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis, and it comes out in January.
3: And this is it essay, is it, or is it a no, continuous? No, it's a
4: study. So I did this article for Oprah.com that a couple of years ago that went super viral, and it was basically about Generation X women and how nobody pays any attention to us. And in fact, what we're trying to do is very difficult. And um, culturally, we just hit all these different roadblocks uh, when we were coming out of college trying to get jobs there was the jobless recession and when we were basically like at every stage economically we've been in a in a bad way and so now we're trying to like usually have little kids and full time jobs and taking care of aging parents while going through perimenopause and then the culture is telling us to like lean in so it's just about that and I interviewed hundreds of women for the the book there's a little bit of memoir in it but mostly it's just trying to describe this generation of women and what's different in middle age for us than was for our mothers and grandmothers.
3: I think it's that's such an interesting subject I'm so excited about <laughs> reading it I'm Cutie. desperate to get my hands on that <laughs> you've not got a word document or no yeah <laughs> sure. like you do whatever you want. are there any books that you kind of found when you were writing it that were sort of useful or helpful or insightful either like fiction or Um, Well, one thing
4: I think people don't talk about is menopause and perimenopause. So I feel like all the the books that talked in any way realistically about those Mm. topics I found really helpful and fascinating. There's one that's like menopause confidential, and that was actually really good. But yeah, but there weren't a lot. I mean, I think one thing that was interesting to me is that women who were having a midlife crisis tend to downplay it. They tend to say, oh, I'm lucky. Everything's fine. It's not so bad. And that actually, when you look at their lives, they, they're quite bad. They're quite hard. Uh, so, so what's interesting to me is all those the middle-aged men books where they're very indulgent of mm. all their feelings and their needs and their, like, and desire I, to break
3: free. And, the, yeah. the, the, you know, when you hear about a middle-of crisis, the assumption, it always sounds quite male and quite flashy yeah, and quite, like, and yeah. you get a
4: girlfriend and,
3: yeah. You so rarely, I think... I very rarely hear women refer to it in that sense, where it's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you're going to hit the midpoint. And right. um, do you know a book, but called Out of Time, by a writer called Miranda Sawyer, who's a Oh yeah, I read it. that.
4: Yes, that was very, that was really good. I really, really liked that I book. Did. I liked it a lot too.
3: Well, there's there a Martin Amis. I always got my Amos'es confused. I think it's Martin Amos about the sort of aging and the way we look back and look forward, mm-hmm. and then this sort of you know that not looking forward becomes a full time occupation, or, or it's not looking back. But that's sort of this idea of
4: yeah, like when having to it,
3: comprehend that life is finite at this point and not really knowing which direction to face. Well, and I think there there's all these
4: analogies. Like if you're on the top of the hill, then it's downhill after that, and you get to you. But once you're in that on that perch in middle age, you can look back on your life more clearly, and forward at your life more clearly. And so if you have regrets for things you did or didn't do, you have to live with them and wrestle with them at that moment. And then if you have ideas for things you want to do or you feel like you're no longer able to do looking forward, you also have to grapple with those. But it's funny. Women I wanted to interview, I would say, do you you think I could talk to you for this, this book? And they would say, oh, I'm not having a midlife crisis. And they're like, I mean, unless you think that, like, you know, my husband leaving me after taking um, all our money and having our house foreclosed upon and then me having aneurysm and then getting fired from my STEM job, um, it, would that count? And I'm like, I think that counts. You know, it's just this overload in midlife of all of these difficult things, uh, but then women tending to minimize them or to say, I have no right to complain. And I, I, I beg to differ. I think there is a reason to complain
3: i really liked something that Brene Brown said that she was talking to a friend and I think that where she was in Texas there was a huge storm and like the power was out for a week and her friend called to say like how are you coping? She's like oh you know well it could be so much worse because you know some people like lost everything and we're just like you know we have no power but it's fine and like the kids are okay and her friend said look it's me. (laughs) <laughs> you don't have to pretend it's like you can say that you're really pissed off that you exactly. have no electricity and you've not had a whole water for a week
4: right and I and I, I think eventually you do want to get to the place where you can be, have gratitude and all these things but I think there's an intermediate step of actually looking at things as they are and that's one thing I hope the book does is say like this is actually these are all the the cards stacked against us and here's here's why it's like that and maybe it's not a hundred percent that we didn't work hard enough because I think a lot of women just think like oh if I just had tried harder if I did more Pilates or if
3: I you know did this well that's the da-da. trouble with lean in I found yes you know with all little due respect to Cheryl Sandberg I'm like yeah. this is not new information we have been told the problem was <laughs> us the whole time Surely <laughs> oh, it's not us like be more be harder yeah. you better be quieter
4: right yeah I agree and there's there's some amazing study about that book and about writing like it where people think then if they the more they read that material the more they blame women for not getting ahead yeah because it's, it seems as though oh if you had only done these things and known your value and uh, hey, the, Gapé, you tried asking for a raise? <laughs> yeah. um, get back in there yeah See oh, we got. I, sure um, I got a lot of Lego books on my shelves because of my son. Oh, I like the Lego Ideas book. Oh, it's very fun. good. Yeah, there are a lot of amazing ones. Oh, do you know this book um, by Abby Fracht called Licorice? Oh, that does ring a fake bell. I read it in the 90s. It was um, some guy I had this mad crush on in high school was reading it, and I was like, I'm going to go read that book. And it's... um. It's another one of these very small books. It's very quiet. I think it's just like a summer and she's pregnant and she's just eating licorice compulsively <laughs> and, um, and, and having sexual fantasies and um, it's just, it's so lovely. And it, it's, it's like a very quiet book, but I've reread it many oh, times. Oh, well, for a quiet book section. Yes, Excellent. For the things where, the, the section where nothing happens, the, the opposite of the Salman Rushdie. Oh, Marilyn Robinson is probably my favorite novelist. So I have a lot of her. I give housekeeping to a lot of people. Um, Tell me about housekeeping. It's another quiet book, but it's about these sisters and their aunt. And it's about it's about longing and the idea of home and relationships between women. And uh, it's just the most beautifully written thing in the world. Oh,
3: this is my – speaking of women. Yes. <laughs> I saw this when you sent the pictures over and I wanted to – Dolly, My Life and Other Unfinished Business. Oh, my God, okay. her hair. I mean, I know, always, Dolly, the hair. So but. on this book, I share with an
4: editor at, um, at Penguin named Trish uh, Butchkowski. And because Tim Gunn, got, when, when I was working with the, on a book with him for Trish, Tim was with Dolly Parton and had her sign a book to us. So it's to Ada and Trish. Dolly Parton and so we mail it every like six months to a year we trade ownership of the book so actually probably I think I'm due to mail this back to her.
3: Oh that is (laughs) the loveliest thing I ever heard that's so So, nice. Joint ownership joint custody. Do you make sure you read it again when you've got it in in your possession? I, I have I will flip through
4: it often it's probably my favorite celebrity memoir because she talks a lot about these moments in her life where she either felt this really strong connection to music, or to God, or to her sexuality, or to, like, or the way she, how the way she dressed evolved, how she wanted to look like the town tramp because she thought the town tramp was so glamorous, and I just I think it's a very well done memoir.
3: I think a lot about Dolly Parton when people are being very scornful about you know, the Kardashians and this that you know, mm-hmm. now in this sort of time of like women are like it's terrible because they're <laughs> getting their faces injected with poison and they're doing <laughs> this mad contra and that actually it's complicated I think because on the one hand no one should be trying to kind of meet the standard they feel they can never meet, and using mm. it to make them miserable. But then I think you know it's great. Like women have agency over their yeah. own faces, and it's so interesting that we're like, oh, selfies. It's terrible because like right. women are so vain. But right. like, no, it's the female gaze. It's yeah. wonderful, and I think Dolly was a real pioneer in that respect. I think you're right.
4: I think you're right. And in her case, I think what's so incredible is that. It goes along, the way she looks, this unbelievable, sparkly, glowy thing, goes along with, like, the most beautiful voice of all time Mm. and this incredible business savvy on this just deep goodness and Mm. kindness. So I just, I think she's a saint. I think she's absolutely amazing. And she has the best quotes. She talks about, like, it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. That's one of her lines. And, um, And then she also talks about being underestimated. Like, there's this line... Do you know all these jokes, these Dolly Parton jokes? There's, there's so many of them, but there's one that's like, you know, people said, oh, does it, do you mind all the dumb blonde jokes? And she said, no, because I know I'm not dumb and I know I'm not blonde.
3: <laughs> Huge thanks to Ada. You can follow her at Ada Calhoun on social media. Why We Can't Sleep is out on the 5th of March. It's smart, thoughtful, provocative and fiercely feminist. And I think you're going to love it. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow shelf obsessives. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the B. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. It's produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now I leave you with this from John Green. Books are the ultimate dumpies. Put them down and they'll wait for you forever. Pay attention to them and they always love you back. See you next time.